Welcome to Dissecting Education, where we take a spherical look at the education landscape from many vantage points. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks. Glad you're here with us today. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Dissecting Education. I'm so excited today to have David Mantica with us. David has 25 years of business-to-business services, consulting, coaching, and training industry experience in roles from operation, service delivery, marketing, product management, and executive management. Just recently, he successfully sold his business-to-business training firm, having taken it from 1.2 million to 30 million in seven years, all organically. Currently, David is the VP and General Manager for SoftEd US, a leading provider of transformational training services working to support companies embrace agile methods for achieving business results. Along with his work at SoftEd, David provides business owner coaching services to several companies in the Raleigh-Durham area through DTM Services. He also provides pro bono career coaching services and presentations to individuals and organizations. Welcome to the podcast, David. All right. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start by talking a little bit about Soft Ed and um, how you got into that, what it's about, um, and what great services you offer. Great. We are a business-to-business for-profit training company. We focus in on the software development lifecycle, and then that is going to be things like agile methods, business analysis work, software testing, and DevOps. And these are all ways to work in complicated and complex environments. We do a lot of training, and our training can be public or on-site. We do some coaching and some consulting as well. For me, I've been in training now for 26 years. I absolutely love it. Um, I did leave the industry for about two, three years, but I came right back. And the best thing from my standpoint is I just love being able to offer something to the marketplace and the community that provides value. I'm not just, a box is great, but I'm not just selling a box. I'm selling someone being able to grow in their skill development, which then reduces the risk and the stress that they have about their career and about their life. So there's a lot of personal satisfaction I get out of being in this industry. So that's some um, soft ed and training in a nutshell. Awesome. Awesome. So tell us how, tell us a little bit about your journey and the other things you've done. I know you have a, as your bio says, you have a, a robust history prior to soft ed. So, so tell us a little bit about that and kind of what led you to the places that you've been. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting path we all take, right? Sure. Um, for me, I had a great deal of intellectual curiosity, but I was a bit of a screw up. I like to have a really good time. And because I like to have a really good time, that kind of set me down different pathways. But I learned early on, taking the time off between high school and college, that I needed an education in order to have any type of substantial impact in the world and to feel like I was, you know, I was providing some value back. And um, with that, so... I went to college, got an economics degree, which I use every flipping day. I mean, that economics degree is amazingly valuable. And I, I think people for, don't realize that. And I think they think it's a little scary, a little bit too much numbers. And then getting into something called behavioral economics, which gets even cooler around psychology and economic theory and how the two come together, maybe a little sociology as well. So from there, I got into the training space. And I got into the training space because I put myself through college in the hospitality arena, and I was able to run a training facility back in 1995. And this was crazy, too, because 
The person who interviewed me asked if I knew what ATM was. Back then, I thought ATM was automated, automated teller machine, but it was actually a technology called asynchronous transfer mode. And the person interviewing me asked me if I knew what Cisco was. Well, also the food service company, SYSCO, that's the food <laughs> service company. <laughs> right. And he's, right. He, yeah, he's like, no, it's a router company. But the, thankfully, they hired me and I got a crash course in all things technology. So I was really able to learn about technology from the foundational levels, but also understand why people buy it because training is at that precipice of you know why you're going to do something you just made the decision to do it and you have to do it so you get to touch a lot of different things and so that added a great deal of value so spent a number of years at the largest training company in the world at that time global knowledge got to travel the world got to be involved in a lot of cool things and then luckily that same person who asked me the questions about atm and cisco hired me to be the president and the minority owner of a training company so it was aspe we had to pivot it substantially um, in the early stages. And so went from zero to $13 million in about seven years and successfully sold it in 2013 and had to work an earn out for three years, which I will tell any business owner never to do a three-year earn out as long <laughs> as you live. And I can explain the reasons why I'm not here. That could be a whole other podcast. Um, but that was a substantially big impact on my career. I didn't get an MBA, but it was like an MBA experience. It also taught me about people, about, you know, what makes a business work, because running a $13 million business is complicated and complex. I mean, you don't have all the same bells and whistles as a $20 million business. You're more complicated than a hundred million than a $1 million business. Yeah. So it was certainly a, a, a wonderful experience. And then because of that experience, I've been able to do some cool things. And soft ed is, is really one of those cool things where I can actually talk and and present as well as try to sell and do business development for an amazing company out of New Zealand. That's amazing. I love that. What is it about training that um, kind of lights you up? Oh my gosh, there's a thousand different things about training that lights me up. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very intellectually curious person. I mean, I want to know what's going on around me. I, I want to know the answer to why. And I think it's so much fun when you figure out why, when you, when you start seeing those things operate, then when you see the why moment in other people, it gets even more exciting. And then I really learned that, that that experience between high school and college and putting myself through school in the restaurant business really taught me what happens if you don't focus on the education piece, nobody can take it away from you. Once you got it, you own it, it's yours. There's nothing people can do to take that from you. And that value is so incredible. And, and I know there's a lot of fear in it. Like people come to us because they're scared. They're, they're scared, they're not gonna be able to do a good enough job. They might suffer from imposter syndrome. They, they just might feel like they, that they can't compete in the marketplace. And then we come and help alleviate that. So at the end of the day, it really fires me up. One, because I always love learning and training is such a rapidly changing environment that you have to learn right. or you don't survive. And at the same token, you get to watch people <sighs> just take that, oh, I, I get it now. I feel more confident. Oh, I can do this. Yeah. Oh, I can keep my job. Oh, I can get that certification that will make me more money. And, and that's, a, that's a, you don't get a chance to touch a lot of people. So for example, at Global Knowledge, we had this phenomenal course director, Tony DiNardo. He did um, understanding computer networks. And I was, I was a young man at the time. I was, I was his product manager for five years. Didn't realize he had prostate cancer and he, he passed on. And when I went down and met with his wife and saw, went to the funeral, and one of the things I said, I said, you know, Tony touched 10,000 people between the teachings that he did and the courseware that he had. It's just that impact. You just don't get that in a lot of other careers. So right. that's part of it. it. It gets me really fired up. 
Oh, that's awesome. So what kind of things are you seeing in terms of kind of evolutions in the training industry? What are, what are the, you know. We could go on for hours on that question. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Give me, give me Remember, this is, the, this is the business to business side. So I'm a business to business yeah. guy. Um, although I do have some experience on the B2C side and on the university side. Well, the thing I'll start on the university side, though, is I'll, I'll say they're, they're struggling to compete in the pragmatic world of what people want to make money. And, you know, there's this concept called the T-shaped person, which is you learn all those professional skills on top of the T and then your expertise on the bottom of the T. And colleges are start trying to figure out how to, how to position for that. And there are some universities that will sell a six-year degree. It'll be four years and then come back for two more years when your expertise gets displaced and disrupted. And I think that's one of the first struggles they have. The second struggle is, you know, and that side of things is what are those pragmatic skills that, you know, we need in order to compete? And this is where you get these code academies and these B2C for-profit schools that don't even use government money. That basically people are willing to take a $6,000 loan out or a $10,000 loan out or even be able to do something called, you know, I'll pay you a percentage of my money I make into the future. These percentage payment plans yeah. are getting a lot of play as well. So those are some of the things going on. And the B2C marketplace is really hot right now from a, from a training perspective, especially a lifelong, not lifelong, even a lifelong learning, but a career development perspective. On the B2C side, coaching. Coaching is a disruptor to training. Coaching is on the job, just in time. I'm going to hire a bunch of coaches instead of bringing training classes. So that's a big disruptor to training. Another disruptor to training is chunkified content. The lynda.coms of the world, the plural sites of the world, the CBT nuggets of the world. Or I'll give you just in time this bit of information. That's what I need. So I'll just buy a $10 class instead of taking for three minutes instead of three minutes, but 20 minutes instead of taking a two-day class. Right. Um, so you see that trend as well. And then finally, you, you see the stuff that we do, like hands-on or workshop-based, two-day, three-day, is really where you're getting into the art and science of things, where there's a, a complex combination of, I got to do this project management method, but I also have to deal with people. And I got I to work through difficult scenarios, but I also have to do earn value. So that's really some of the trends we're seeing, but that means we're just going up the stack, the universe size gets smaller. So, you know, from a soft dev perspective, our marketplace is changing drastically. I will say that's the detriment in, in some cases of the worker, because mm -hmm. we have put ourselves in this box of instant information, the Twitter knowledge, the knowledge nuggets, and we're losing that critical thinking, that really deep literacy when you could take a deep white paper and you dig into it and you write questions about it and then you synthesize it, then you come out with new ideas and we're starting to lose some of that capability, which makes me a little nervous. Yeah, I, I actually feel from an educator standpoint, also feel that way about the the level of, you know, they, they talk about the attention span of, of folks used to be somewhere around, you know, 20 or 30 seconds and you had to hook them and you had a decent amount of time to, to give them a little spiel before you hook them. And now it's less than seven seconds what? or what? something. It, what? It's, yeah. What? What? Yeah. what? <laughs> so we've, we've come to this age where, you know, the, the vernacular is such attention grabbing that it almost um, amplifies what is kind of, you know, what it can be perceived as mundane, but really important that whole dig in and, and really get to know the material and really fully understand it on a deeper level, because that's where insights happen, right? How can we move stuff forward if you're only always floating along the surface? Uh, we need some people kind of deep diving in there. So that's a, 
And we don't know enough about how the brain works, and this is what we do to ourselves, is this instantaneous response is emotional response. It's from your limbic portion, not the portion of your brain, but the limbic processing your brain that it interprets what you see and what you hear as it relates to, should I run, should I fight, or should I hide? And so we have catered to this. And so our responses are very emotional. Our responses are very quick and our responses are very stereotypical. And what's happening is in the world of VUCA, so, but there was no change. That would be fine. I would use, mm -hmm. I'll use the same hammer to knock in the same nail and to the same piece of plywood over right. and over again, all would be good. But this world is crazily changing around us. It's like, for some reason, the world is changing, although how we attack it isn't changing. So what we have to do is we have to teach, reteach our ability to get into the cortex, get into that deep thinking areas of our brains to really process and think about these very challenging issues. And that's why you see flippant responses to very challenging issues because everybody wants to solve it with a soundbite. They want to be the top on the list of the Twitter rankings or, you know, the most recent, whatever, Facebook rankings or whatever from some soundbite that's not going to solve any complex and complicated problem. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. How, you know, how do we change that? How do we, you know, get, get people to go deeper or change the way that we educate or train people to, to get them? Yeah. It's a double, there's so many, there's so many layers to that. And it's a complicated, mm -hmm. complex problem. So the first thing is, I think we have to go back into how we do K through 12 and how we do college education and just like we've gotten rid of civics, which I think has caused a lot of problems, mm -hmm. we have to reincorporate that concept of what it means to be a citizen and a person of the world, not just a person of your country, but a person of the world. But we also have to integrate, you know, how we work. I don't think enough people understand the human work machine. And the human work machine is how do our brains process information? What are the distortions on the emotional level? What are the distortions on the cognitive level? Why do we have a tendency not to want to change? Why do we have a tendency to always surround ourselves by people we like? And then how do we get manipulated by this, by you know mass media? How do we get manipulated by this, by marketers? So that we can better prepare ourselves to then work in complicated, complex environments. So that's one, That's I think that's one, but the problem is, is we're not set up that way. People want to have an instant analysis. Reading, writing, and arithmetic fit into a measured and monitored operating and operation and system. Mm -hmm. So, and then I think we have to overlay that at the business skill level and even at the that college level about teaching people how to fail. I think the idea of a yes. grade is not necessarily the right way to go. You could grade them, but grade them based on what they learned during their duration and ask for a couple segments where they went beyond what they knew, tried something out. And if it was a disaster, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Give them a grade on how, what level of disaster they created and how they came out of that disaster. Because as a business owner, I hired a lot of younger folks in the entrepreneurial business. It's a struggle to get a certain level of qualified employee because of the lack of benefits you can offer and also the lack of salary you can offer. So I had a, I look for character, intelligence, and sociability, and I would try to you know skill those people up. But the one thing that took forever to help them understand is the fear of failure. Yes. They, it's in, yeah, it's ingrained in us not to fail. We can't fail. But, my business was based on a thousand failures. If it wasn't for those thousand failures, the business would have never succeeded. <laughs> right. No, I, I fully agree. I have, um, I, I preach this on a regular basis that, and in fact, I've had some great conversations around this on, on my two podcasts around, you know, I don't know when 
in our lifetimes, um, individually or kind of societally, that we were told to only try things that we don't fail at because <laughs> failure is the number one greatest way to <laughs> eliminate fear and grow as a human and, and then be able to be a better person to contribute more to the world later, right? I have this, um, this wonderful story. One of my clients, one of my very early consulting clients, a nonprofit in Miami-Dade County, Florida, um, I went into the um, executive director's office and he had these giant sticky notes up behind him. And there was, there was a whole big list, um, there was sticky note of sticky notes, there was giant ones. And there was a list of things and most of the things were crossed out and a couple of them were circled and a couple of them had stars. And I, <laughs> you know, I finished the meeting and then I had said, I have to ask, like, what is this? And he said, these are all the new ideas that we tried this, this fiscal year. All the crossed out ones failed and all the ones that are circled, um, we're still working on and all the starred ones were success. He goes, I want to prove in a visual way that it's okay mm -hmm. to try stuff and fail because look at the great things with the stars. We would never have gotten there if we didn't try all these other things and figure it out. And I just thought, what a powerful leadership lesson to have oh, yeah. it there in a very visual way for people to remember, like, it's okay to try things, um, to do your homework, you know, in figuring it out. It doesn't mean, you know, be wasteful with resources, but it does mean thinking through, you know, giving, giving stuff a try and then seeing where it goes and then learning from it. Right. The debrief is just as important, um, to make it's sure really that you learn hard. from it's failures. A, it's a really hard thing to train because you got, um, learned helplessness and you have psychological safety going against you. Yes. Learn helplessness is I want to give up my autonomy to somebody else to lead and to drive because it's easier for me to do that because I won't get in trouble. And then psychological safety being, well, I don't, don't trust that you're actually going to do what you're saying. And, and think about the condescending face you got from the teacher who was disappointed because you got a C. Or your parents who say, you know, I'm not paying for college. I'm one of these. Let's get all A's and B's. I mean, we are broken at the very fabric of, you know, how we drive certification programs, how we evaluate success in higher education. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't necessarily know how to fix it because both those things, the certification programs and the evaluation of success, here's a great, great interrupted point, but I, I coach um, business owners and this one entrepreneur goes, oh, I love that 4.0 grade point average. I go, yeah, because they can follow anything you say, they'll follow the rules. I go, he goes, yeah. I go, they have no intro, they have no entrepreneurial experience, but they'll they'll follow the rules. So I that for this role, I want somebody who's gonna follow the rules. That's how an entrepreneur interpret interprets someone with a really good grade in today's world as someone who will follow structure pathway and right. will, yeah, because they know how to do that. And that's not how you solve complicated and complex problems. Right, right. And it's also not um you know, to be perfectly honest too, it's depending on the, the background or the upbringing, or like you said, the, the parental push when you're growing up, it may not be the highest and best use of that person's skills. Even if they have the ability to follow the rules and do it, if you only are partitioning them to a role where yeah. following the rules is the only way to go, you may be missing out on a whole creative side of them that they oh, haven't yeah. even discovered yet, especially if they're a young employee. Mm -hmm. We have to start looking at paying for two things. We're not paying for somebody who knows how to do something. Knowing how to do something is great and all, but it's really no value. I want to pay people who know how to get things done. That's number one. How can you get things done? So this concept of the linchpin, the person who connects others together, who pulls disparate pieces apart and brings it back together is hugely valuable. 
But what happens is we still get absorbed by this expert power base. Look at you get your PhD in the in the in the gnat that falls on the rhino's butt. I mean, it's insane because that gnat's going to be disrupted immediately. That myopic look does not deal with the complicated because it gives a disruption. The status quo is an invisible killer, and this this fixation on the expert power base is is becoming the noose that we're hanging ourselves by because nobody can take because less people have the skills to take an objective look, and then the ability to bring in a bunch of people to look at it, and then the constitution to watch some of the failures occurred and not like in political space, it's impossible to be adaptive. You get killed. The first five things you try are gonna be a massive failure because you're adapting your thing. The press is gonna be all over you. And next thing you know, you're just gonna find flippant solutions or you're gonna do sound bites to protect yourself. So we created this monster and <laughs> on, the, on the business side, I think we can drive through it. On the social side, I think we're gonna have a lot more struggles before it gets better. Yeah, I agree. I also, um, I find that the, one of the most frustrating parts, so I have been, a, you know, an adjunct professor for, um, well, until 2019, when I moved to Colorado, um, and I lived in Florida for four different universities for almost 20 years. And during that time, the change in student flexibility and adaptability was, was pretty significant. And that's in a classroom setting, which is, you know, to your point, very kind of constructed, right? We have certain curriculum we have to meet. We have, you know, there's a certain, it's a 13 weeks. It's, it's the very specific, they don't have a choice. You get three or four credits for it. I mean, like these very specific things, you have certain grade point averages you have to have in order to keep your scholarships. And, yep. you know, so that's a very um, rigid, in a sense, environment. But I, when I started, you know, spent my first few years in the classroom, students were more adaptable. They just were, they, were more flexible. They were more um, willing to not ask you what what exactly I'm supposed to do, but rather like I read through this and I'm thinking this. Um, what do you think about this, right? And there's there's still you know these are vast generalizations. There are still kids on both sides of of that um, spectrum, but but I do see a, a, a shift to where the the questions that would come up would be, can I get extra credit because I didn't you know I didn't get achieve the absolute perfect grade that I thought that I had or you know, explain to me exactly what you mean, even if it's written in the syllabus. No, I need you to explain it to me. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Why? The, 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 the lower, the, we're, we're most likely Generation X, mm -hmm. and then the, low, the next generation, the millennial generation, but is, has this fixation on why, and then has a fixation on does that why help me? But it's not, it's not because they're bad. Their generation was the first generation to see people get laid off for no good reason. Yeah. Zero. Their parents just came home one day and said, oh, crap, crying. And, oh, we're going to have to sell the house. We're going to have to do this. I just lost my job. That was the first generation of business process improvement, business reengineering, the mass layoffs. And you look at the numbers, Fortune, Fortune 1000 companies, zero job gains in 1960. Hmm. And they're just reconstituting themselves because they're working with VUCA. So instead of being able to embrace that, you know, that change and, and, and teach yourself with career insurance or something, how to, how to not be a casualty and use that as a stepping stone, what they got out of it is, I'm just going to take care of myself. Yeah. I'd rather, yeah, I'd rather do nothing and, you know, live a life that I want to live because this is the one life I have. So in a lot of cases, I can't fault them for that. It's, I, I almost look at it like we created this, you know, and yeah. how do we as a society get out of it? The first step, though, is that we have to start teaching people that losing a job is not like death. Right. Losing, you, 
It's, so when you talk about VUCA and you talk about adaptive leadership, you get into this idea of, you know, natural systems evolve, adapt, they adopt and evolve. And one of the reasons they do that is you have casualties. Mm -hmm. Business systems are going to have casualties. But we have to look at that and say, we have to be consistent learners. And we are going to be prepared to be a casualty because I put myself at the best possible situation to reestablish myself somewhere else. Like a project manager, you pick the wrong industry, you pick the paper industry, you pick the printing industry. All right, you're going to be a casualty. I don't care how good of a project manager you are, you're going to be a casualty. Now go look to be a project manager for Facebook or Google or what the next great thing is going to be. Right. And, and so long story short there is I think we the way society operates created this situation of the myopic, pragmatic, what's in it for me, wow, why concept and the big relevance. It's all about, it's not about stretching out beyond it. Put me in the relevant box. Let me understand. And, and so we got a long ways to go to fix that. Yeah, absolutely. So shifting gears, I, I ask every guest about what is a uh, one influential kind of educational moment from your from your past that that sticks with you for whatever reason. Oh, can I give you three if they're quick? Although of you probably course, sense I'm not a really I'm not a really quick I babble a lot here. Um, right. the, so the first one is Thomas Mullen. He's an eighth grade social studies teacher. Just really instilled detail and precision. I mean, I could still pull out some crate, the Magna Carta, whatever, 1290 or whatever, the Battle of Hastings, 1096. I mean, some of these things, because he just instilled that, you know, that detail and understand it. And, you know, my mother used to sneak us out of school, we had a big family. So my mother would sneak us out of school to help her grocery shop every twice a month. And he used to get so mad at that because our family was well known in this small town. And he's like, no, oh, you gotta go to school. Yeah, was cool. it, it, that really impressed that. So that, that still sticks in my head. You know, number two is I took this Chinese and history um, and revolution history class at University of Maryland. And oh my gosh, this professor was insane. He was a Yale grad just recent. And he made us read a book a week and he made us take a 200 page book and synthesize it down to two pages. Man, it was brutal. But my gosh, I remembered that about how you had to be concise and specific and 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 that skill set is a hugely hugely val valuable skill set and the last thing was is that you know you didn't have an economics class in high school but we luckily did we had a, a, a half a half a semester economics class and we went to an economics competition actually my team won that and during that whole process i just fell in love with that whole concept and that love of economics has just you know, follow me since the economics can, um, competition at Mrs. Bernstein's um, 12th grade econ class, which I don't even think I got an A in. I think I might have got a B, but I still loved it. But we won the competition. <laughs> I love that. You know what that says to me? And I am like a huge, huge proponent of experiential education. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the things that, Im that were imparted on you were both this kind of presence of a person who cared enough to know that you were missing and that they didn't want to see you miss right yeah and then these other two experiences which were both very kind of out of the box and experiential right this this competition and this deep dive into this this kind of oh, it was crazy know. yeah that that workshop was insane i mean and i used to get so mad he used to get so mad at us sometimes but it, but it was such a great skill and you know funny you should say that because now as an owner and even as a professional, when I coach people in their career, stretch assignments 
is the number one tool. I'm like, I scream, stretch assignment, stretch assignment, give someone psychological safety. If they have the skills, put them in an environment that they can stretch those skills out and then be there to help them get through it. And always remember, it's going to be, it's going to be more expensive the first time. But after that, you're just going to empower some in person with all these yes. new skills. It's going to be cheaper and cheaper. And, you know, it, it, I love, and I, I'm a character. I'm like you said, I, I built my career, not just in high school and college, but professionally from stretch assignments. I was at 28, I was running Global Knowledge Canada for a six months assignment and I had no right to do that, but the, the person trusted me. Right. It was a wonderful right. experience. Well, and I think that it's it really speaks volumes when you, to, to your point about invest early it will and trust that there will be returns. People yes. are, I find so many CEOs that I have worked either for or with have a real you know, I need to know the ROI right now. And sometimes those things are intangible. You just have to trust that you're doing, that you're doing the right thing for the right reasons and it will come back. And the lower gener the lower generation doesn't have that trust yet. And guess what? We haven't given them that trust. I, I do believe that there's going to have to be some type of not age of Aquarius, but we're going to have to have a little bit of a tilt and in, 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 in allowing those folks to gain the trust to do exactly what you say is to be able to embrace the, intang the intangible stuff and trust they're gonna get something out of it. Because right now, very pragmatic. They're at the job for two years. They, they, get this, they take a specific job for a specific reason and they keep moving. And that's hard for companies to deal with. And they don't like working for Fortune 1000. They hate working for Fortune 1000. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's that's just... Um... It's so interesting to me, this, this kind of cultural shift and, you know, how we get back, how we begin to move the needle back to what, uh, you know, what's possible and, and what is really for the betterment of organizations as a whole and the betterment of our communities and, and our world is really, um, it can be very overwhelming, but I also have a lot of hope that like kind of one person at a time, as we have these conversations about deeper thinking and experiential and, you know, investment in people and the skills and the training and the things that they need that, that, um, you know, we'll start to, to move that. <laughs> a, very a very heterogeneous society yeah. needs a inspirational thing to go after. Mm -hmm. You know, John F. Kennedy, you know, drove us to space, you know, through all the 1960s till Nixon, when we landed on the moon, the amount of innovation and creation, the amount of, of a national pride that we got from that. Um, you know, you know, President Reagan, you know, from the idea of, you know, wanting to knock down communism, knock down the wall, whether your political affiliation, there was a sense of pride to try to help, you know, those other countries once the wall came down mm -hmm. to, you know, help them and look at what we did in Japan after World War II. So I really think ultimately, for it to happen, there's got to be something that's above, you know, something that, you know, do we want to get the first couple people on Mars? Do we do we want to try to really push towards a better healthcare system after our COVID, where we can all, besides our petty differences, which there really are petty, you know, be able to embrace ourselves and say, ah, yeah, I get it. And that's going to be hard. But yeah. I think it's doable. Yeah, it's a big job, but nothing worthwhile is ever easy, right? I mean, and in companies, that's what you do. In companies, you always try to create some, okay, we're, you know, the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal from the, right. you know, good to great books and mm -hmm. things of that nature, just trying to get them to be inspired by a certain purpose. 
And whether that purpose is financial or that purpose is social, whatever the case may be, you know, people, because people want to be inspired. And, and, and right now we lack inspiration. That's part of why we're at this stage. Yeah, that's a great, actually, that's a great way to put it. I haven't thought about it in that framing yet, but you're right. We, we lack overall societal inspiration. Yeah. Right? You know, it's funny thing that because we, you know, you debate this and although they're not doing very well, that's what the monarchy was about in England. The monarchy about in England was trying to show people a place to be so the politicians could be ugly and run around in the muck and figure they're messing this out. But then you had this thing. Now, of course, we mucked that up as well um, because of them or not. I don't know. But, you know, that's kind of how they tried to solve it. Um, but I think we tried to solve it through technology innovations that we have attacked and, you know, and gone after to bring our, you know, completely heterogeneous culture. There's no other culture with this level of complexity of people. And, you know, some of the beautiful things we've done in the past can be done again. We just have to remember, I think we have to bring that back. Yeah. I do not disagree with you. Well, as we start to wrap up, tell, um, tell everyone how they can learn more about the programs of soft ed, um, how they can learn, uh, get in touch with you personally, if you <laughs> want to follow up and, um, yeah. So um, soft ed, www, it's really easy, soft, S-O-F-T-E-D.com. Very simple. The website has all the content and all the curriculum that we have available to us and our contact information is there. For me, LinkedIn, I have a very unique name, David Mantica, um, M-A-N-T-I-C-A, just type it in, I'm there. I have dmantica at yahoo.com, dmantica at gmail.com, dmantica at hotmail.com because <laughs> you know, no people, no, I don't think there's anybody out there that has that name. It's only oh, like, three, yeah, there's only three, four, so yeah, there's only like three or 4,000 Manticas on the planet right now. So it's kind of, it's kind of wild. So those are the two best ways. We got a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. We do a podcast ourselves. We have that up on the soft Ed website. So, um, and I do a lot of speaking throughout, um, North America. Wonderful. So one last tip for, you know, people that, that want to start to move the needle. What's your, What's your advice about moving the needle to a, to a better place out of all the things we've talked about? Um, act, focus on actualizing yourself. Now focus on making money, now focus on saving money, focus on actual, what does it mean to actualize yourself? What are the, what's, what does that, where does that take you? I think that's number one. I think number two is learning how to unlearn. Start, stop thinking that all that experience you brought to the table is valuable. A lot of it isn't valuable anymore. It's called the fallacy of the fixed cost. So if you can learn to push that aside to, to reestablish a new baseline and then constantly evaluate that, that baseline. And the last thing is, you know, don't ask to be inspired. Be inspirational. Inspire others around you. That's the referent or referent power base. The more you can inspire around others around you, the changes you'll see that start to come about can be quite quite amazing. So those those are the th two the three things I would I would point out to folks. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful and so inspirational to your. Thank you, show. thank you, Melanie. I appreciate that. So thank <laughs> you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Melanie. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on your podcast. All right. This has been dissecting education with your host, Dr. Melanie Hicks a production of In Pursuit Research. Outcomes-driven, impact-focused. Thanks, and we'll see you on another episode soon.